Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, welcome back to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are delighted to sort of recommence things um, with a crossover episode with Isabella Rosner from So What, which I'm sure many of you will listen to. And you will remember Isabella from our first episode on textiles, which was um, part of our first series. So we are absolutely delighted to be doing this crossover episode today. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. So this episode, we are talking about ladies' boxes. All of the innuendos. We love (laughs) boxes by ladies for ladies with ladies in mind. Isabella, you've brought along uh, an object today from your research. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is? Maybe describe it for our listeners and we can have a chat about it. Tell us about your box. Oh my God, (laughs) let's get into it. So this is the box that is like, has just been a huge part of my research for the last few years. I I don't know, I didn't expect my life to be intensely researching a single box, but like that's where we're at and we love to see it. So it is an embroidered cabinet from the 17th century, likely made or possibly made by a girl, woman, hard to say it's hard to say how old she was when she made it um by a person named Susanna Perwich and it's in the collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art LACMA and I was lucky enough to see it firsthand when I was working there a few years ago and it hadn't been on it's like never been taken out of a box speaking of boxes it that box was in a box and it had not been unboxed since 1979. So meta, what does it all mean? Much to think about. What, so I, it hadn't basically left its container for 40 years. And I was one of the first people to see it, which was really exciting. And what started the whole research on this thing is, for those of you who know 17th century cabinets and caskets, if you know me, you probably know those boxes because it's all I talk about at this point. They were covered in embroidery, these kind of wooden boxes that open, and sometimes it's lids that open, sometimes it's doors, sometimes it's both. They're covered in, you know, biblical narratives or female personifications of the senses or the virtues, or just sort of like 17th century images, courting couples, that sort of thing. And oftentimes they were an important teaching tool for a girl who was learning how to stitch. And it was one of the final Um, projects in her needlework education. What was exciting for me when I saw this box was there was a coat of arms in the middle. When you open these two doors at the front, there's a coat of arms. And I, in 2017, had just come freshly out of getting deep, deep, deep into heraldry, leaning way far in and just getting into coats of arms in a way that I didn't expect. So when I saw that coat of arms, I was like, oh, yes, how exciting I can do some research on this. And that actually led to me discovering that um, the box is associated with one of 
the most important, longest lasting, biggest, and most renowned 17th century girls' schools in Hackney, which was at the time the center of fancy lady education. You know, if you were the daughter of a merchant or an aristocrat or a person who worked in London doing basically whatever, and you were fair, you were from a middling or upper class family, you were likely being sent to Hackney to learn how to be a nice lady, you know, to know how to stitch and to learn how to dance and to do some math and to write a little bit. So it was really exciting for me to be able to link an actual extant object to one of the most important schools and an incredibly important important person within that education system. How did you end up kind of linking it to the particular woman that you mentioned, to Susanna? Yeah. What happened was I did a bunch of research into the coat of arms and determined that the coat of arms relates to a family called Perwich, P-E-R-W-I-C-H-E. And I was like, who are those people? What is happening? I didn't really, I never heard of that name or anything. And then looking that up got me nowhere, but deleting an E because early modern spelling was so unregulated. I researched Perwich without the E and found a bunch of stuff about this girl named Susanna Perwich, who died at 25 years old, um, which is quite sad. She, God, this is just the most 17th century thing in the world. She slept over at a friend's house on damp sheets. She got a cold and she died. I have to laugh because that's like Wild. so brutal and terrible. <laughs> like, what do you, what can you do with that? So basically she is still quite well known because after her death, her brother-in-law, John Batchelor, wrote a book about her called The Virgin's Pattern. And it was all about her life. She was, you know, a musical prodigy who was extremely well known in London. People came from abroad to see her perform. She worked at the school. She was very pious and she was an extremely skilled needleworker. So when I found that, I was like, tell me more. What is the connection here? And while I can't say with absolute certainty that the box was made by Susanna, there are lots of reasons to believe that it was actually her work. She was one of the only sisters of the family who was the right box making age uh, when this box was made, which was likely 1645 to 1655. The narrative on the outside of the box is Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is the ancestor of David, I think, who's the most musically oriented figure in the Bible, which would create an interesting connection given how musical Susanna was. And it strikes me that it's really unusual that we've got this kind of biographical narrative. You know, we can actually, this isn't an anonymous box. This is somebody where we know who has made it. And what you seem to be doing is actually really making use of that and making these links between the choices that she's made in the the imagery that she is embroidering on the box and her own personal interests. So it really sort of enriches it. Well, honestly, it's just a rare treat that there is an extant object and a possible maker who is well known still because there are other cabinets and caskets from the period that have names associated with them. But those girls, those women who stitched them, there's like nothing known about them anymore. So it's kind of impossible to connect this surviving object with a person who has, you know, a fully fleshed out identity. It's one of the hard things about researching this stuff is, you know, I can get a name and that's thrilling in and of itself. 
but that only gets me so far because what is a name like Miss Blewett, who supposedly made this cabinet at the Ashmolean? What does a name like Miss Blewett get me? Not very much at all. You know, I can assume that she was the daughter of a well-off merchant, you know, or some sort of aristocrat or member of the upper or middling class. I can, you know, guess that she was taught in Hackney, but that's basically all I know. So shout out to Susanna Perwich. I'm sorry that she died in like the world's saddest and lamest way, but um, I'm really grateful that her legacy has been commemorated and still is with us today. So in a way, the box is kind of like an interesting microcosm for all of these like methodological issues with how we pair women's lives with these kind of objects that they made and, and which is often so difficult to do. So yes, it's a great shame <laughs> that she has this tragic story, but without that, we probably wouldn't know her and we wouldn't know her box. And it shows us how much else that we're missing in the stories of so many other material objects as well, when an object story can become so enriched, when you can add this kind of biographical detail and information it's really sort of frustrating and saddening that then we can't do that for all of the other objects. What are all these amazing, intangible, completely lost stories that we're missing out on? Something I think about all the time because the the presence of this stuff makes very clear the absence of everything else. It seems to be just a lucky pairing because oftentimes I think about this could well not be Susanna's box. It could be a box made by one of her sisters. You know, If it was made by Meliora Perwich, could have been and there's no reason to say it's not but you know Meliora doesn't have a legacy in the same way that Susanna Perwich does and kind of luckily and fruitfully pairing Susanna with this object is convenient in that we get the story of the piece and the maker but it could well be her sister who is not known or remembered at all and I think that makes the absence of these stories and the absence of a lot of the survive like how much of the objects don't survive very tangible. Speaking of absences, was there anything in the box? What sort of things we put in and do the contents of these kinds of cabinets survive today? Not surprising that there was nothing left in the box because typically when these boxes enter into collections, if they maintained their objects all the way through the centuries, you know, the conservator at the museum would go painstakingly go through every single compartment and remove everything. Every time I open one of these boxes, one of these cabinets or caskets, which always have secret drawers, I selfishly hope that some museum professional decades ago who, you know, first brought the object into the collection missed or like didn't notice one of the secret compartments and that I could open it up and reveal something super special. Unfortunately, no, but there are boxes that survive from the time periods from right when Susanna Perwich made her box that have their surviving objects in them. And there are, there's a whole variety of stuff. There's a box at Colonial Williamsburg that has pieces of a 17th century clay pipe in it, which brings up a lot of questions. Was that a girl's, you know, father's or a brother's pipe? Was there something important about that pipe? Or did somebody somewhere down the line in the 18th or 19th or even 20th century find a pipe, see this 17th century pipe, and think, oh, that's the same time period. I should, you know, put these two unrelated objects together. But then there are other, you know, there are luckily a few examples of boxes that have entire suites still, little bits still in them. You know, I talk about the Martha Edlin box like, like it's my job. 
it's kind of my job, but I talk about her stuff all the time. And what's one of the important parts of her needlework set is it includes everything that she made and that she was gifted as a student. You know, it includes this tiny goose thing. It includes a few purses. It includes a bodkin and a needle case and these tiny miniature gloves, but it also includes weird toy pewter, little tea kettle and tiny forks and knives. And that is so meaningful and poignant because it's not only all of the objects a girl made, but it's also all the objects a girl owned. It's her whole world in miniature in this box. Really what drew us all to this episode topic, right, was this idea of kind of boxes and their relationship with interiority and this sort of miniaturization of one's entire world kind of arranged in this very kind of neatly contained um, space, how that kind of might survive through centuries as this sort of perfect microcosmic replication of someone's experience is is really wonderful. And, And also that distance between the stories that boxes can tell us and also the stories that we tell using boxes as well and I think that's something that comes up in all the examples that we're going to talk about actually this that kind of distance and how difficult it is as a historian to approach something like that and what kind of attempts can you make to bridge that distance if indeed it's useful to do do so at all. Totally I mean I talk about Susanna Perwich's box and all of these sorts of early modern schoolgirl boxes as treasure boxes or treasure chests mostly because the way I understand them is these were containers that held basically all of a girl's possessions because it's not like a girl in the 17th century had a bunch of stuff that she could call her own. That's not the case. So I think it's a treasure chest, not only for her, it's full of her actually treasured objects, but for us, these boxes, whether it's a 17th century embroidered box or any of the boxes we'll be talking about today, they're treasure for us as well because they're time capsules, they're miniature, they're containers that contain oftentimes a full person's life. And even if they don't have a full life in there, those little snippets are really intriguing and can tell us so much about who produced or you know used or dealt with the box over the course of centuries. That's such a key idea, isn't it, as well, that the choices that people make in terms of the objects that they put into these boxes are really key and that the collections that you know now in some cases survive inside them are really curated versions of those people and you presented often uh, not always and sometimes it's hard to tell but often by the people who made the boxes themselves so they're not just containers but they are sort of self-portraits in that way and that brings up you know that's really exciting but also brings up all these issues uh, with curation and the archive when one considers like is this the real person or we are seeing a curated version of a person's life and what does that mean for the individual archive big questions no answers from me we talk a lot about these boxes as being made by these women and we know that they did the needlework but are they also wrapping the needlework around the wood are they actually putting all of the wooden parts together or is there a second set of hands or is there 
like there's a whole different kind of making knowledge in essentially woodwork that is going into the making of these boxes and and where is that coming from it's an issue that lots of people have been thinking about and getting towards and trying to work out and i don't think anybody has any conclusive answers yet but what is clear and is known is that the girls produced the needlework but their objects their boxes were constructed by someone else. So the clearest example of this is there's a cabinet made by Hannah Smith in Manchester and included in the cabinet is a note from her. In this note, she said, I made, you know, I stitched these panels in Oxford and my cabinet was made up in London, which implies um, not only a you know collaboration in terms of the number of people, but a collaboration kind of across the country. But So basically, women were making the needlework, whether they were stitching on panels drawn by their teacher, by themselves, or by professionals, kind of depends. We can kind of see the evidence in underdrawings on a case-by-case basis. They seem to have then sent their panels to a professional woodworker or constructor, maybe like I, it, who that person is, is kind of mysterious, but somebody who would produce the box, put the panels on, edge it with, you know, this sort of metal braid, put it all together. Who exactly did that is kind of unclear. And what the exact process was is also unclear. Like, did these girls, did their teacher talk to an artist in the wood person beforehand being like, this is the dimensions of what is going to come your way and you need to make a box based on this or was the box already pre-made and then you would make you would kind of draw your panels out based on the size of that box different merchants were probably selling different sized boxes who did you go to did you go to the person who was closest or who was cheapest or whose box shape you liked most it's it's quite mysterious there are these little hints so there's that Hannah Smith cabinet note in the Inventory of John Nellum's objects. John Nellum was a professional embroiderer, hugely influential in the 17th century in London. And in his inventory of objects, there were three, three completed boxes, which brings up a bunch of other questions. Did he, as a professional embroiderer and haberdasher, construct these boxes, or was it a wood, more a wood-based worker? And a cabinet that's in the collection of John Bryan, which has been published in Marking Time through Yale University Press this past year. The last object in that catalog is a cabinet. And on one of the panels that can come off, there is a handwritten note that says to put a cushion on or something similar to that, which implies that somebody was giving somebody else instructions. That brings up lots of questions of how many different people were in on this. And it's kind of impossible to know at this point unless further research comes out and hopefully it will. But to conclude this long rambling answer, basically it was the ultimate collaboration between not only girls, but probably their teachers or their mothers, if their mothers were the ones who were teaching them, but also professional, probably male craftspeople who dealt in another medium. So, you know, you have a girl who is dealing with the textile and a man, a boy, I don't know, but likely a male dealing with the wood aspect of it. And that's just the simplest answer. There are probably many other people involved in it. The people who made the metal braid, the people who, you know, made all of the hinges, 
it was probably a party in in terms of the world of box production. It's really interesting reversal of that usual sort of, you know, the big men makers, but we don't know the women makers. And it's a really interesting reversal of that, that it's far easier. I mean, not, not easy at all in general, but it's possible to identify the women makers in this case or the girl makers, but the men that were potentially also enacting their own handicraft skills in the production of these boxes, they are the ones that are missing from these objects. And it's a really interesting kind of switch of maker's power and maker's legacy through these objects. Yeah, I actually hadn't even thought of it in those terms, but that's entirely correct. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like textiles in general. And one of the reasons that I kind of gravitated toward textiles at the beginning of you know, my time studying art history in unis, because I was kind of sick of all of these identifiable men and not a single woman who, you know, very few women who, whose art could actually be related to a name and a person. And I think maybe subconsciously it's all led to this, to the great reversal and to me being able to like actually identify women and have men who are a bit more in the shadows. No offense to men. That sounds terrible. I just mean that I think I'm excited to be in a field where the women are in the spotlight. Really briefly to go back to kind of the different, the collaborative nature and the different materialities involved in this one object. Just you mentioned the cushion and also I know some of them had mirrors and things as well. So you're kind of, you're dealing with this kind of huge number of guild systems and kind of um, crafts people working in mirror glass and then the cushions, whatever that would be made of that material. And then the metal and the wood as well. So I just think there's something really exciting about like, the different centers of um, making production at that point as well. And the fact that you can place that girl or that woman into this larger narrative is really, really exciting. It is like absolutely thrilling. You are so right. How many, how many hands the materials involved in this one object have had to go through and how many guilds are involved because not only is there, you know, the embroiderers guilds and various woodworking guilds and all of it, you know, like silk manufacturing and all that stuff. But then there's like, there's like the metal workers who have to make the wire that you're crafting your little raised work figures on. And there's, you know, mica and there are beads and there's like artificial coral. It's, these objects are tiny, but are like wildly enough the epicenter of a, just a huge variety of 17th century making and consumption. So I think we're going to move forward chronologically through our boxes. So I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction with my box, uh, or rather boxes, because I am cheating and I couldn't choose between two. But they're only small, so I hope that you guys will forgive me. These are two patch boxes that I own. So sometimes known as pill boxes. They're these small enameled boxes, um, usually oval or rectangular in shape with a little metal hinged lid that often has a little mirror inside. I think that these are absolutely fascinating because they sit at this really kind of strange intersection between sartorial kind of beauty accessory because they're often used to keep patches in to adorn the face. But they're also a domestic object. They're adorning the private space of the dressing table. So they're sort of public and sort of private. They're sort of bodily. They're sort of part of the domestic interior. They're in this really strange 
quite dynamic space. And then when we add onto that the emotional and cultural and political dynamics bound up in the decoration of so many of these patch boxes, I think that's even more exciting. So a tiny little box can have so much cultural and personal meaning. The two that I own, I think, actually quite nicely and accidentally sum up two possible varieties of patch box really well. So the first one is decorated with the phrase, when this you see, remember me. And I actually bought this for myself as a present for finishing my book manuscript. So it's sort of got an extra level of self-gifted meaning. You know, when I look at this, I will think about having finished my book and that kind of personal pride in having done that. And in the conclusion of the book, I talk about this phrase and I talk about the idea of an object as a kind of a remembrancer, as memorialization. And boxes like this take the idea of the object as something imbued with personal meaning, but unlike something like a, a stay busk, which might have been personally carved by a lover or a piece of embroidery that might have been personally created and made to sort of fit an individual's personal meaning, patch boxes like this were commercially produced items. You know, there's multiples of them available. You are applying your personal story and your personal emotions to something which there are many versions of out in the marketplace and which other people are applying different kinds of meaning to. So they weren't unique, they weren't one of a kind, they weren't personal to your relationship, but they were part of a commercialized material culture of love and friendship that you're projecting your own meaning onto. The other one takes this commercialization even further. So this one depicts a woman wearing a God Save the King hair bandeau, which has all these fabulous ostrich feathers and plumes coming out the top. And she's rather, rather fabulous. So these hair bandeau were briefly in fashion in 1789. So that was the year when George III very fleetingly recovered from his illness and the Regency crisis was briefly averted. So all of these members of the Georgian elites who might have previously been sporting fashions which showed their support of the Prince of Wales during the crisis, they were suddenly, funnily enough, desperate to show their support of the king and that they were loyal patriots and the king didn't need to worry about them and everything was fine. So these hair bandeaux were one of the most popular ways for women to show their support of the king and of their royal loyalty. So this patch box is sort of a moment of patriotic inception. It's a material object which expresses patriotic support of the king through depicting a woman wearing a material object which expressed patriotic support of the king. So I really like that, that there's this kind of kind of mirroring um, inception thing going on in this object. So Anna, I think it's really interesting as well, the way in which this dynamic, obviously, of like commercialization and intensely intimate affection, but then it kind of went through a second version of that because when it was on the antiques trade market, it obviously had certain kinds of value, but then you imbued it with this narrative about finishing your book. And it's quite lovely that it's been through so many commodity states throughout its existence. So I, I love that. Again, another doubling. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder how many, how many lives these objects have had between the 18th century and now as well. Like, so the, when this, you see, remember me one actually has some, um, original 18th century patches inside still. 
And, and I love the little mirror as well. You can sort of think about the faces that have looked into that mirror. So it's sort of got this sign of original use in it as well. And then I wonder, in the intervening years, have its successive owners sort of prized it as this relic because it's got the patches inside and isn't that wonderful and let's leave it um, as it is? Or are they patches that some antique dealer has picked up at some point and thrown in there and they've just sort of put it as a job lot to add to its kind of its appeal and we just don't know and it sort of comes back to what we we're saying with Isabella as well like when you find these objects in other objects for a boxes episode there's lots of things in other things then how do we know what that journey has been how do we know that they are original to that object and or how do we know that they aren't this sort of projected meaning onto that object or projected use even if you find a box that you know, it's got patches in it, but these were also used as pill boxes, as trinket boxes. Is it a patch box? You know, how are we kind of ascribing that meaning through actions that might have taken place in the 1970s, for all I know? Serena, on your point, that also relates to the box that I discussed, this idea of kind of the amalgamation of objects within a box and like the possible stories there just reminds me of the fact that we live in this time where unboxing is incredibly popular as just a concept. And I know many museums get in on the trend of unboxing things from their archival boxes and seeing what they have in storage. It just reminds me, it makes me think that what is as important as unboxing is thinking about the actual boxing of all of this stuff. Like we should be thinking about, and I hadn't thought about it in this until this conversation, we should be thinking about what goes into the creation of these possibly strange mixes of objects and time periods, just as much as we should be paying attention and um, learning from what has come out of the box. So interesting. And actually, um, with my chosen box, I've sort of gone down a similar route uh, to Serena in thinking about these handheld boxes, which were part of a wider conversation, really, about commercialised material culture. So I've recently been working on a Victorian woman collector called Lady Charlotte Schreiber, uh, who I feel like I'm going to be talking about for uh, decades to come, because she had this fascinating, although at times kind of quite scandalous life. She translated the Mabignogion from Welsh, which influenced people like Tennyson. She championed education for all, especially for women. She ran an iron industry in Wales when her first husband died and kind of took over the business, you know, all in the 1850s. This fascinating person. She also ends up getting together with her eldest son's tutor once her first husband dies, and they basically um, marry. It's very uh, kind of wild gossip of the time and they run around the decade uh, kind of the continent the next few decades collecting objects together so she collects this huge range of mostly 17th and 18th century objects especially ceramics as well as fans playing cards scrapbooks and lots of snuff boxes and the box that I want to talk about today uh, she actually gave to the British Museum in the late 1880s so the box is about eight centimeters long um, maybe about 10 centimeters wide so it you know in, it would fit into your hand I think um, and most likely it's a snuff box but it 
slightly bigger and might have been used as a tobacco box. Uh, but snuff was especially fashionable um, towards the end of the 18th, early 19th centuries when this box was most likely made. And snuff is essentially scented powdered tobacco. Sometimes they would add different spices into it or, or things like vanilla and it would be sniffed or inhaled and it became incredibly fashionable in the 18th century and was normally carried around by both men and women in these sort of trinket-like boxes. But our box today is made of a dark brown horn material um, and the horn is being pressed into this sort of oval shape. And on the lid of the box, we find a profile of a person's head and it's an enslaved person, it's a man, he's wearing an earring and he's also wearing a slave collar around his neck. Now, most likely this box was produced to kind of form part of a wider political anti-slavery visual rhetoric at the time, perhaps best known today, I think um, we could relate it to the anti-slavery or abolition Jasper Ware medallion, which was produced uh, by Josiah Wedgwood in the 1780s based on a design by William Hackwood. Um, and if, for those of you who don't know that image, it features the image of a kneeling black enslaved person who's uh, normally shown in chains. And this image was reproduced on an international scale across the globe on a variety of objects, so jugs, plates, patch and snuff boxes, pill boxes, hairpins, bracelets. It essentially became the sort of ubiquitous symbol for the anti-slavery kind of movement being widely disseminated and sort of publicly visible so people could show their political belief system and kind of their support of the abolition movement. So it became a kind of valuable means of promoting the cause. But of course, as many of us know, this image is incredibly complex. So the figure is seen in, in a rather homogenous light. It can read that they are subservient, that they have no agency. Although as some like Kerry Sinanen and others have noted, of course, today, especially following events of Black Lives Matters last summer, there's this resurgence in taking the knee to campaign against racial injustice and kind of show an agency through that as well, through that motif. So I've been thinking a lot about this box, um, particularly the fact that it was collected by a late 19th century Victorian woman who was particularly, you know, very interested in education, um, in kind of cultural philanthropy, who was really quite, um, you know, ahead of her time in many ways. And I think this box absolutely fits into this broader historical context of the abolition movement in England at the turn of the 19th century. And it's made me think a lot about well, I guess things we've already been talking about today in terms of objects lives and their biographies and changing values and especially how this shifts when objects are exchanged and they become kind of shift from highly consumable products at the end of the 18th century into the sort of you know hallowed halls of a late 19th century collector's home and then ultimately with this box are destined for the sort of white marble pillars of an institution like the British Museum. And of course, presumably Lady Charlotte would have seen this treasured example as a object of imperial British identity, seeing the British in this very positive light, fighting for injustice, kind of a self-congratulatory narrative almost. Um, um, being against slavery and ultimately being successful. But despite all of this, there's of course this real inherent and, and sort of sad, almost frustrating irony in all of this, because of course snuff itself 
as a form of manufactured tobacco was a direct product of the slave trade of the triangular transatlantic slaving trade slave trading route it was grown on plantations which were using enslaved labor and were completely embedded within these wider practices of colonial violence and then snuff was shipped back from the americas and tobacco were shipped back from the americas on ships uh, with enslaved people on them so absolutely as a material it was profiting from this global trade and then placed into these highly decorative items that were part of a wider elite luxury lifestyle, but were also being used as a sort of political tool to show um, a belief against slavery, which they were you know, directly playing into. Um, so I don't really have any kind of solutions to this, but I think it's just with this box in particular, the fact that it was produced at a very particular time at the end of the 18th century and then recollected by uh, this interesting woman collector in the late 19th century and ultimately destined to sit in the British Museum today. I just feel like there are so many layers of histories and stories to be told from this very simple box. And again, it's that distance between the stories that a box is trying to tell and the stories that we can tell from it and how the contents maybe doesn't always relate to the exterior and or at least sits in a sort of difficult dialogue with it. We have different kind of material material literacies and political awareness and and human sort of knowledge over time has evolved and and it's really fascinating how we see these different kind of stages in how aware people are of the implications of these objects and how they're projecting their own kind of political agenda onto these objects at different at different times. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something, in especially here in terms of kind of the tactile or the haptic engagement with these objects, the fact that someone would have been physically lifting the, the lid of the snuff box and on that lid is a head of an enslaved person and you're kind of engaging in this possession the system as possession or ownership almost even though you're also saying you don't agree with it and you want to make a kind of public stance to your friends whoever's watching or perhaps talk about anti-slavery movement or did they know you know what was being fought for at that time and then you open the box you have it in your hands you're again is that um ownership and and you're using this material which is completely implicated within this violent colonial system yeah, that dynamic of relating enslaved bodies with other forms of possessive commodification. It's interesting to see that endure well beyond the sort of end of the triangular trade and and um, slavery uh, in Britain into the 19th century in the way that you've just described, like owning, owning that object and owning the snuff, which is part of those same systems of trade and enslavement is, it's really, um, yeah, really, I mean, it's really a really troubling long history of, of that object. And I think that there are, you know, um, reflections of that now. It, I just find your item feels very relevant to today. The sort of surface level identity politics and and the desire to show your political allegiances or your social allegiances while still while still being incredibly closely related and implicated in the the, the problematic material itself. Yeah, so actually my box, I think, pairs quite nicely with Caroline's example because it's also about sort of these narratives around and narratives and histories around um, colonialism and colonial self-presentation and women positioning themselves, 
within the Imperial project, often in quite flattering lights um, and their achievements, quote unquote, within that kind of being celebrated. So my example, again, is a little bit left of um, centre as I picked a box that isn't actually an 18th or 19th century box or a historical box in any fashion, really. It's a box of 19th century things put together at a later date. And so obviously it corresponds with lots of the ideas and issues we've already been sort of talking about um, here. And so for me, it's this box, which I'll, I'll tell you what it is in a second. It asks all kinds of interesting questions about how objects are grouped together, labeled and conceptualized in archival and institutional contexts. So the box um, is often known as Lady Jane Franklin's Museum, and it's in the collections of Derby Record Office, um, where it is part of the Gell family collection, uh, which is housed there. And I got to know this box during my time at the University of Derby, uh, when we included it in one of our projects for the Being Human Festival, and we sort of unpacked its contents. And one of my colleagues, Ruth Larson, did a really great podcast where she discussed its contents and a bit about Lady Jane Franklin's life, which is, um, we will link somewhere on the internet. Um, and um, Lady Jane is a really interesting character. You may know her from the recent TV series, The Terror. Um, she lived between 1791 and 1875, and she was the second wife of the English explorer, Sir John Franklin, who obviously um, goes missing as part of that show. Um, so she and her husband were part of the mechanisms of the Imperial Project in Australia in the 19th century. And during her husband's time, uh, she at as lieutenant governor of uh, van diamond's land which is now known as tasmania she became known for her philanthropic work and her travels across the region um, she was really exceptionally well traveled for a woman living at the time and her collections some of which are represented in this box represent reflect this aspect of her life so she visits every continent except antarctica ironically bringing back many um, souvenirs from her trips and but she's perhaps best known now to us today um, for her virulent campaigning following john franklin's disappearance um, in search of the northwestern passage um, as part of which she sponsored or otherwise supported several expeditions to try and determine what had happened to the party um, and she writes lots of um, angry letters in an attempt to keep her husband's name at the forefront of public attention and to keep the sort of search for him alive. But within this box really is a kind of curious collection of objects and its curators have described it as containing the precious mementos Lady Jane Franklin displayed in her house and reminders of the adventurous lives that she and her husband John Franklin had led. And so this refers to Jane's museum that she kept at the house. But fascinatingly, we only really get a sense of what that might have looked like through what survives in this box. So in a way, the box kind of functions as a microcosm of this lost museum. And we get a sort of in a tangible glimpse at what might have been in the broader space. Um, and what I should maybe also say at this stage is that the record office ran a successful crowdfunding campaign so that the individual items that were sort of jumbled up altogether in this box now are kept in a more traditional way in kind of archival boxes that make it easier to and safer to display their objects. But initially it was just sort of a kind of jumble of things that had been preserved from um, this collection.
So some of the most interesting pieces um, from the box include um, a piece of lace that came from the boudoir of Princess Alexandra on her wedding day to the Prince of Wales in 1863. And so we might, again, try and piece together some kind of fragments of uh, Jane Franklin's life from it. So we might wonder if she attended the wedding. Other things that are included are natural materials. So there are nuts from Mount Sinai, there's acorns from trees which she had planted while her her husband was Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land. Um, and this is interesting because there are lots of stories from this times and their behaviour in, in Tasmania, particularly around her efforts to improve the lot of female prisoners there. So one of these acorns, which appears on a little labelled backing card, is narrativized in histories of this box as a token of love given by a prisoner to her child and so it functions as a memento of Lady Jane's work with the prisoners. And as such, this is very typical of stories of expected philanthropic behaviour on the part of women in these kinds of scenarios, right, where um, they're sort of white saviour figures very in kind of that sense of the term. Um, indeed, in 1839, she visits a new settlement at Melbourne, um, where she receives an address signed by 63 of the leading citizens, which refer to her character for kindness, benevolence and charity. Um, and so she, the, the couple really exist within that benevolent model of colonialism. Um, and as part of this, they also adopt an indigenous Australian girl called Mathena. Um, she is educated by Lady uh, Franklin's 16 year old um, stepdaughter, Eleanor, and um, she makes a pincushion, which is also preserved in this box. Um, and there's also a very sweet doll that we think might have been Mathena's, um, and there's, as there's a diary entry which corresponds uh, with her being given the doll. Um, and otherwise, the collection also includes two pieces of mummy cloth from Thebes, uh, which likely came from her Egyptian travels, and both of which are very neatly labelled, like the nuts. Um, and we can presume that this was done by Lady Jane for the benefit of her guests to the museum. So we can kind of imagine some of the curatorial and ritualistic practices that emerged around this space. And I think this box is interesting for a number of reasons, not least of which because it was never really an original kind of object in its own right. But the labelling of the objects in particular raises interesting questions for me about curatorial and archival practices, both initially in the shape of the collection as it existed at the time, but also subsequently in terms of how these objects have been displayed together in that box. And actually something of the, the her labelling these items and imagining what, how and where people might have engaged with them brought to mind maybe some of Maddie's work around the Duchess of Portland and her box, which you've talked to me a lot about before. And I can't remember if we've mentioned on the podcast previously. It really does resonate with one of the boxes that survives from her museum, which was instead an 18th century collection and that it, it was a museum that was auctioned off and therefore completely dismantled in eight, in 1786. But actually, it's a really similar thing happens there where there's a box that survives and it is unclear whether that box was assembled by the Duchess of Portland herself or by a later curatorial practice. And it's a very similar thing where the objects are sort of accompanied by these narratives that are written out 
And I think that's so interesting, Freya, the sort of the stories. And again, this idea of self-presentation that's taking place there and it's self-presentation, particularly in a sort of colonial context, which is exactly what we see with the Dutch Supports Museum in the 18th century as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting in particular in terms of these sort of these very snatched moments of of self-presentation as well, right? We only get a tiny portion of surviving things and then we sort of recreate lives around them. So the doll is perhaps, to, you know, associated with the with the adopted daughter or the nuts are potentially taken from this. So again, it's about reconstructing these lives and it's not just lives of this wealthy white woman, right, who was a traveller, but it's all these other lives that are then kind of touched by and, you know, actively implicated within this sort of imperial project. I think it's really fascinating. I have so many thoughts on this box because when you were talking, I made the connection that I had not made before, which is Lady Jane Franklin, the woman who basically, who was essentially the first pass at crafting this, this collection and then curatorially that happened again later. She was the patroness of this incredibly brutal orphan school for girls in Van Diemen's land called the Queen's Orphan School. And she, so there are a few surviving samplers and pieces of needlework that were basically made by girls at the school for her in her honor. And the school is known as being like one of the most brutal institutions in the world, which is quite disheartening and horrifying, but really interesting in the larger scheme of the creation of this box and whatever what you and Maddie were both saying before my comment about self-presentation and that you get this these snippets of this woman's life but only the snippets she wants you to see you know you get the snippets you get her adopted daughter's doll but what is not present in the box is the fact that I think she gave up that daughter I think she like sent the daughter away after three years to the horrible school and never saw her again or something like truly horrifying, which is all very brutal. And I'm sorry to absolutely go off on your box, but I find it, (laughs) hello to the innuendo, hello. Um, (laughs) But I like find it so interesting that your example is very reminiscent of Caroline's example of this, you know, Victorian woman crafting this image and and taking these really important life altering and deeply problematic, you know, behaviors like enslaving other people and turning it into some sort of weird trinkety thing. Your, the Lady Jane Franklin has done that to like such an intense extent in comparison. And then it essentially happens again through curation, which is so interesting. No hate, no shame to the curators who did that because I totally, that is, I think anybody in that situation would do that. But it, what it does again is similarly to my box, it's a combination of a surviving set of objects and the person whose life is known. And in the case of my object, that's a treat because we can add all this context to this piece of surviving schoolgirl needlework. And in the case of your objects, it's a treat and or horror because these objects gain all of this context they didn't have before and things that go from being seemingly innocent and actually lovely turn into really damning indications of colonial power dynamics. I didn't know that at all and actually I think that is really interesting in terms of contextualizations that occur or don't occur around these this collection of objects. So I think it it's truly 
telling the way in which the narrative of her school is completely absent from various spaces in which Lady Jane is chronicled on the internet um, and in, uh, in books and things. So I think the disjuncture between those things and then how that relates to particularly a girls' school as well, which I think is interesting to go back to these forms of female education that you were talking about earlier in the episode, is, is really fascinating. Your objects so bring up the issue of the archive for me, which I mentioned previously, you know, and the many layers of complication that can come with the archive and how I think in the case of all of our objects, even if, you know, many of our objects have objects within objects, which, which tends to suggest that we are seeing a truthful, you know, really fleshed out archive but probably we're not. We're seeing, you know, a selected curated mix of stuff that maybe the original owner or people in the hundreds of years in between them and now, them and us have altered and made choices about. No, I I think that's really interesting. This idea that maybe like the box as a space or site creates or reinforces a potentially duplicitous narratives around the way in which these things are grouped together or maybe not grouped together but that because they're in this intact space that we we're more like kind of likely to believe them or to invest something that's really sort of standing out for me is the idea that boxes that have been assembled and collections that are curated within them can if you'll excuse the pun sort of lift the lid on times before that collection was put together so obviously Freya your the box that you talked about is looking back at the 19th century but also that those collections can tell essentially fictions about the people who assembled them so the box that I want to talk about is or it's rather it's a series of boxes is a, a work that's actually made in the 21st century looking back to the regency period when the 2020 film um, adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma came out the director, Autumn DeWilde, created a series of boxes that she used first to pitch the film uh, and then to explain her concept to the cast. And then later there was a box that was associated with the release of the film itself and the uh, different elements of that were filmed in a, um, a sort of unboxing. And we've talked about unboxing as being this sort of this thing of the moment um, and a sort of a trendy cultural phenomenon that's happening now. So in these boxes, and there's not a huge amount of information about them on the internet. I think that's kind of part of their, their charm and their narrative, that they're kind of exclusive to the production and that they're seen by a few favoured friends and, and cast members. In interviews, Autumn Dwell talks about, first of all, taking a box that she does specify includes prints. Um, And these, I believe, are 18th and 19th century prints. I know that she has a collection of these works um, and that she shared them initially with the production designer at the earliest stages when they were talking about sort of achieving the look of of Highbury and that kind of very vibrant, colourful and specifically very choreographed and posed early 19th century world. So she took a box of prints and some photographs of cast members who hadn't been cast yet who were sort of ideal iterations of those characters as she saw them she took those two executive producers and she actually talks in one in one interview about an unboxing that took place over zoom and I just I think there's something so evocative about that you know we're all missing those kind of tactile engagements with objects um, and especially as researchers who have been you know struggling in the last year or so to get into museums and actually deal with collections I think there's something that really speaks to all of us about this so 
DeWild actually had a copy of the box herself and she'd sent a copy to various producers and they all opened it at the same time. And she talks about how this way of pitching a film not only got their attention and, you know, got her the funding that she needed, but also sort of engendered a really specific and collaborative conversation about how that world would be built. We've talked a lot about boxes as storytelling. And I think in this case, the box really is setting up the story. So a later iteration of the box that DeWild showed to cast members included sketches that were basically a storyboard for the whole film, but that instead of being maybe set out on a wall actually were inside the box. And I think there's something about the sort of the unfolding narrative, right, of taking out, you know, a scene and then another scene. And it's a way of it's sort of entering the story and playing it out that's distinctly tactile. When the film was released, DeWild brought on another box that she'd created in collaboration with the artist, author and illustrator Carson Ellis. And included in this, what she terms a puzzle purse. And it's one of those, it's sort of in the style of one of those paper folded puzzles that you might make when you're little and you know you write numbers on them and you put your fingers into them and there's sort of different options that come up in order to create or evoke the world of of Highbury and of Jane Austen's vision of Emma they, they sort of create what what DeWild calls a bird's eye view and that as you unfold the paper you go further into not only the story but the sort of the topography of the imagined world as well. Am I correct in thinking that they were like Valentine puzzle purses were really popular in the early 19th century and and particularly I think amongst women as like kind of a sign of a signifier of female friendship they would give them I think there's something so interesting in kind of reappropriating that within a 21st century context in terms of recreating this historical. Actually DeWild references that these objects were originally um, sort of centered around female friendship and she talks about the fact that it's a collaboration and that it's drawn from her interest in women's craft work and that the box itself becomes a space reflective of of women's work um obviously not only in terms of craft but also in terms of filmmaking itself. The box works really well particularly as a as a, an object to personify Emma, actually, because the whole novel happens in this quite restricted, close geographical area that is sort of inboxed in its own in its own space. So I think that there's so many resonances there, and it actually it reminds me of the beginning of the 1996 Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow as well, which centres on this little sort of globe ornament. There's so much that's central to the narrative of Emma that is about this kind of small world. No, almost um, claustrophobic world in a way and how a whole story and people's lives again coming back to that can be kind of encased in this small space I think it's fascinating that that has carried through these versions. The Wild as well famously includes a period or a full stop at the end of the title it's Emma full stop and this idea that the world begins and ends with Emma is absolutely you're so right, Serena, the, the globe at the beginning of the 90s version with Gwyneth Paltrow has always really fascinated me. And actually, I think the opening credits of that film as well are watercolours supposedly done by Emma. And so this is a vision of the world presented by Emma. OK, in this case, it's not in a box, but it's one that's been crafted by her and that she literally manipulates. You know, when she in the opening sequence of the 90s film, the globe that she displays at the beginning she's twisting it and sort of dangling it in front of the camera and it's very much she is in control of the motion the direction that world's moving in um, and who gets to see it I love this idea of pitching a film and that the 
as a concept, it kind of already exists in its own little world. And that as people are brought onto the project, they're invited into the box and to have access to it, um, which is just, I think, a delightful idea, really. I also love the, I am obsessed with the puzzle purse. Like Freya sent me the video of it before. So I was like, I watched it on repeat. I like, I have so many thoughts on it, but I, I think the name, even the name implies a further unboxing, you know, it's a purse that itself is a container that reveals so much more. And it also leads me back to the idea of curation, which we were talking about throughout this episode, not necessarily like you have these choices and it's a make your own adventure puzzle basically. And so it's not necessarily like you're curating your story yourself the story is being curated by, you know, the, the story is being curated and made and fashioned by by chance and by random choices that you're making. I just find it so interesting. Um, the, the name and the action of it feels really relevant for what we're talking about throughout this episode. Definitely. And that kind of object, it, it has literal layers to it, but so many layers in terms of the data that it holds, um, which I think is absolutely parallel to the bo- all the boxes that we've talked about actually and and that some of that information you access via sort of tactile inquiry you can open the doors you can lift the lid you can put your hand inside and reach out you know, bring out objects that are inside but also those kind of metaphorical layers that as historians we approach these objects thinking about each layer and the sort of where we choose to end what layer we choose to end on and or prioritize in the narrative that we're telling I think speaks as much to our own time and our own priorities as it does the people who made those objects in the past. Well, that seems like a great place to end. So thank you so much, Isabella, for coming on to our crossover episode. And we've been the traveling sisterhood of art historians, and we are currently working on our second season, which will be on the theme of bodies. And we're delighted to be funded by the Association for Art History. So watch this space. But Isabella, it's been an absolute treat. And please do tell our listeners about your upcoming So What uh, podcast. Thank you so much, all of you, for having me. This was such a treat. I mean, it is just like hanging out with friends it, and just, you know, talking about boxes, which is what I do anyway. So it's really great. Thank you for this opportunity and for this dream of a crossover episode. So what uh, season three is happening. It will be coming out in the foreseeable future. It'll be a shorter season because, you know, hopefully we're all getting back to our normal lives a little bit. It'll be, I think, five to 10 episodes instead of 20 to 25, but it'll be a lovely mix of me rattling on about specific pieces of needlework and some interviews with some really exciting people. So thanks for having me. I just want to talk about boxes all day, every day. So this is what a great time. Now we need to wrap it up in a nice little bow, our box of an episode. Please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram and don't forget to subscribe.